Welcome to the Absolute Purpose Project, a podcast series by Absolute PR and Marketing that investigates inspiring and enlightening individuals, brands, and organizations that focus on purpose as a force for good. In our podcast series, we will explore the best ways of communicating purpose through the eyes of some of the UK's most inspirational communicators and their compelling and often quirky stories. The Absolute Purpose Project is an extension of the work the agency has been doing for the last 20 years in guiding brands to deliver environmental and social impacts through action, innovation and communication. We are extremely excited to be introducing our next guest, Rob Hopkins, founder of Transition Towns, a movement that has been growing since 2005, where community-led transition groups are working for a low-carbon, socially just future with resilient communities, more active participation in society, and a caring culture which is focused on supporting each other. The practice is very hands-on and includes methods to really imagine the changes we need such as setting up a renewable energy project, relocalizing food systems, and creating community and green spaces to nurture cultural and mindset changes that really support social and environmental change. This approach has spread now to over 48 countries in thousands of groups in towns, villages, cities, universities, schools. Around the world, there are 23 transition hubs that support and connect through the sharing of inspirational stories and knowledge. Welcome to the Purpose Project, Rob Hopkins. How are you? Hi, I'm very good. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining. And so, Rob, the Observer named you one of the 50 most celebrated new radicals would you actually describe yourself as a radical it's a funny feeling you know waking up in the morning one day knowing that all across the country people are opening their newspaper at breakfast and seeing you in a list of radicals especially people who might be your next door neighbors or who you see down the shops or whatever i guess so yes i mean like i i guess i feel like i shouldn't be radical it doesn't feel especially radical but sadly, the world and the context that we're in at the moment seems to judge the idea that the idea of arguing that we need to urgently move away from fossil fuels and the world that we could move to instead could be actually a far better place does sadly still seem to be seen as quite a radical idea by certain key people in charge. So I think the fact that I'm seen as radical isn't necessarily down to anything I'm doing. I think it's more down to the wider context that sees ideas like that as, as being radical, which is ridiculous. And do you feel like you've been acting in this radical way all your life then? I feel like I've always had a bit of a rebellious streak to me, really, and a bit of a, a refusal to to take what's on offer as somehow being the best that it could be. I guess I was in my early 20s when I started to become really aware of sustainability and issues around that. I've always been very interested in in social change movements and how to bring that about. Yeah, I've al- I've always been inspired by stories of people who've come together to try and change things. And so transition is just my very small contribution to that big historical impulse. Well answered. Tapping into your well-established podcast from What If to What Next, you talk about What If spaces, which I really love the idea of. Could you just tell us a little bit about about that, really? Well, there's a beautiful... The Institute for the Future in Palo Alto in America have a great quote on their window by Jim Data, who says, any useful statement about the future should at first seem ridiculous. 
And I feel like we have procrastinated and prevaricated and allowed oil and gas companies and financial interests mm. to slow action on climate change to a point where we are now in a state where only really radical, big, imaginative, seemingly ridiculous ideas have the sufficient level of ambition that might actually make a kind of impact. The time for little incremental steps are really, really finished. And what I see around me at the moment is uh, Mariame Kaba, who I love, who's an American activist uh, around prison abolition, which for me is one of the most amazing what-if space movements in the world. She says, uh, we live in a system that's been locked into a false sense of inevitability. And how do we, so how do we break out of that? Because at the moment, all the organizations who should be reimagining everything, which is what climate change absolutely demands of us, is that we rapidly transform every aspect of how the world works. The organizations that should be doing that, the government departments, the, the finance people, the businesses who should be doing that, kind of are just coasting along doing what they've always done because that's what they're set up to do. All the infrastructure is in place for that. So it's only if we can make intentional, well-facilitated spaces to really think beyond that, that we have any chance of doing it. And I call them what-if spaces, because I, I've seen again and again the power of people coming together in a way that's well-facilitated to ask a really good, come up with really good what-if questions. Mm. And for me, a really good what-if question is a bit like in Alice in Wonderland, where she's too big to fit through the door into the garden, but she can look through it and she can see the most beautiful garden and she really, really longs to get into that garden. That's what a good what if question does. It, it, it inspires you to think, I want that. It makes you curious, it makes you think, I've got a piece of that puzzle. And I think we need to be creating those what if spaces because our future depends on our ability to fundamentally reimagine the world as we see it today. One thing I wanted to ask you about, actually, completely off-piste, Rob, is this idea that in a, at a time where there's a huge crisis around the cost of living, we are all paying through the nose for our energy. I just wonder how, what, what your stance is on that, really. I know you, you're going to have a point of view on this. Yeah, my stance on that is, is that the oil and gas industry is the clearest, most present threat to the survival of life on this planet at the moment we know mm -hmm. from records released themselves and recent uh, hearings in in congress the oil and gas industry knew about climate change in mm -hmm. the 1970s because they were the ones doing the science and actually the forecasts that they were doing in the 1970s have proven to be terrifyingly accurate and precise to what actually mm -hmm. happened mm -hmm. and in the late 70s they took a, a decision that actually that they were just going to continue to to drive towards profits and pay for fake science and buy off politicians and buy off media outlets and just keep going like that. So I feel like there there is no credible pathway through climate change that doesn't involve shutting down the oil and gas sector within the next five, six, seven years. I think Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil are absolutely right to say the oil and gas companies mm -hmm. are, are morally bankrupt and really have no role uh, going forward. And we and the work of our time, I think, now is to make them is to withdraw their social license. You know, you, know, you don't get to sponsor football teams and art exhibitions. The only ethical thing for an oil and gas company to do in 2023 is to design their own demise within the next five years in such a way that they actually redistribute those resources to, 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 to doing what needs to be done. Yeah. So in your mind, what are the key principles of communicating or demonstrating purpose? 
I think for me in the work that I do, a lot of a lot of how I do that is around story. What we we are surrounded by endless stories of our demise and of dystopia and mm. whether we get wiped out by aliens or viruses or or gremlins or uh, monsters whatever it is you know we love telling stories about how we get completely mm -hmm. destroyed by various things we're terrible at telling the stories about how we turned something round how we encountered a problem mm -hmm. and came together and applied our ingenuity to that and a lot of my role in the transition movement which you know started in 2006 as you said is now active in in you know nearly 50 countries around the world it's really a network of stories people get inspired by what we're talking about they decide they're going to try it where they are we say here's all the resources you need they're free you don't have to sign up and join mm -hmm. this membership you don't have to pay an annual membership to to be part of this just take it do it run with it be amazing do amazing things the only commitment is that you share your stories and so a lot of my work is really around looking out for those stories, sharing those stories. And I think a lot of the sense of purpose that I see that people get from what I do is that it gives them it gives them stories. You know, when you're when you're trying to have a conversation about how the future could be, if you don't have a memory full of inspiring stories about, you know, in Berlin, they want to mm. shut out, they want to keep cars out of the whole centre of that city. You know, in 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 Utrecht, thirty three thousand bicycles cycling to the centre of Utrecht every morning and what were underground car parks were all being repurposed as bicycle parks did you know in liege they're completely reimagining the food system Do you know it's like we need to give people those stories mm. of possibility and then that gives them a purpose it's what i find is i when i do work with with, with young people it's like we all need a north star you know the poet yeah. rilke said the future must enter into you a long time before it happens the future mm -hmm. must enter into you a long time before it happens. If all we give people in our messaging and our campaigning is extinction and collapse, extinction and collapse, extinction and collapse, mm -hmm. that doesn't give you a purpose. We need to be yes. feeding people's imaginations because we're only going to move towards a more low carbon, more just, more equal, more fair future. If it feels like something delicious and exquisite and historic and magnificent and that our lives wouldn't be complete unless that's where we go so that comes back to the idea of storytelling we all need to get an awful lot better uh, at storytelling i think the stories are so compelling they just pull you in and make anything tangible right yeah it's something i noticed it's something i noticed for years when i was giving talks was when i would start my talks with 20 minutes of awful graphs about how shit everything is and all the graphs that go up and down and terrifying pictures of tar sands physically you see people lean back in their chairs but as soon as you start telling stories people lean in we're, we're a storytelling species that's what just differentiates us from everyone else so i guess the uh, what if to what now spaces what would they actually look like just thinking about that actual concept you already obviously you hold these spaces and you talk of your work with young people what sort of work are you doing with young audiences well i do i mean i tailor what i do for wherever i go so it can range from like a half an hour talk to a three-day kind of away day up in the mountains somewhere because i was a teacher for a long time before i, I was a teacher of permaculture mm. And I taught in a college in Ireland for five years. And I was really inspired mm -hmm. by an amazing book called The 
the Manual of Teaching Permaculture Creatively, which was a whole different approach to teaching that said no one, after 20 minutes of sitting in a chair, listening to a teacher, no one's taking anything in. Like it's, and so it's like, keep changing it, do this, get them up, get people doing this, get people doing that. So, so one of the things that I do when I, when I run workshops is try and get people comfortable with playing again get adults comfortable with playing, get adults comfortable with being a bit silly in front of other people. So I, I kind of collect silly games and exercises and activities that we do. I always ground it in the context of why we're doing this. We're doing this because this is a climate and ecological emergency that, that demands that we reimagine everything. But it's mm. fun and we do, in the, one of the things we do is a thing called the walk of what if, where we have a framing what if question and then I ask mm -hmm. people to go out on a walk in a group of five or six people and to just brainstorm what if questions that come underneath that. So, for example, I did one with Patagonia where the question was, what if in everything that it did, Patagonia acted as if this was a climate and ecological emergency? Okay, so then you start, well, what if in every shop we did this? What if, what if, what if? But I always, before mm -hmm. they do that exercise, I do an exercise that I learned when I studied improv, which is called yes, but, yes, and, which is the difference between yes, but and yes, and because it's so important because loads of us whether we're activists or working in a workplace or whatever we get so used to yes but we come with an idea hey we could do this yeah but you know we tried that it didn't work oh yeah but we haven't got the budget for that oh it's too late to do that whatever it is we meet yes but all the time mm -hmm. and it shuts down the imagination yeah. because after a while we just stop trying yes and is the idea that someone says a what if and you go yes and we could do that and we could do that you know what if we opened a what if we opened a, a bar in the park? Yes. And what if Elton John came and played the piano? Yes. And what if we built a rocket? And da, 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 da. and so when people ask, put, come up with what if questions, you respond with yes. And they go for a walk for half an hour. They write their what if questions on strips of paper with mm -hmm. what if written at one end. And then they come back and then we build off that and we work from that. But that's that's one of the exercises that I found to be really effective to, to make that mm -hmm. space for people to go and walk without the fear that someone's going to be saying yes but i'm pretty sure that if you you played that game with children it could go on forever <laughs> Do you know it's it is funny like it really depends on the age of the children because because yeah. little little children yes. get it up to a certain point and then when they get to like 11 12 13 and they're a bit too cool for school they yes. tend to be the ones who are going yeah do you know what i mean all the adults are like oh yes we could do this and the kids are the ones going yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, look, I mean, I think that just looking at everything you're doing, connection is at the very heart of everything, isn't it? And somehow, somewhere along the line, with digital technology and all the rest of it, connection seems to be slipping away, you know, human to human. I just wonder if this is something, connection is something that you have felt and practiced literally all your life. Or have you sway, you know, have you diverted from that at all? I mean, there's such a focus of it on it in this day and age, isn't there? Within the kind of environmental world, mm. there is a, a bit of a sometimes misanthropic vein of people who are like, well, the world would be far better off if we all just if we were all just dead. You know, that actually we'd be far better off. People human beings are a plague on the planet and we'd be far better off without them. I've always quite liked human beings really and and uh, and uh, some of my best friends are human beings and and i think there's so many extraordinary things that human beings are capable of and and i really enjoy 
spending time with people and what they can create and so you know the, i love meeting people and and working with people and i and i think that the, particularly the last three or four years people have so retreated away from that and into kind of mm. online spaces where people feel they can be an awful lot more cruel and horrible and unpleasant and mm. vile to each other and it really it really doesn't serve us at all and uh, uh and i'm i i'm there's a chapter in from what is to what if which is about the impact that social media and our time online have on our imagination and i think it's terrifying when our when our collective attention span is getting less and less and less you know that's what fascism thrives on it's what despots and dictators thrive on it's uh, uh it's really really troubling and, and 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 i feel like we need to be we need to be finding the ways to get back in sitting around tables with each other and meeting each other and creating projects together and uh, and and actually you know some projects that i've been involved with here in totnes it's it's like when you get everybody together in a space magic happens there's a there's a serendipity it's the serendipitous things that happen that i think are just so beautiful when you get people together and you find there's two people who've had a very similar idea and always thought that they were the only people who thought that would be a good idea and then they meet the other person and they're like yeah. ah, yes so there's online online community is really no substitute for for people in a space i think but for people who are online and there are many you know how does a person retreat away from that and and sort of get back into the room with imagination you know someone asked me a very similar question to this the other day about you know how how do we read more books and and i think it's it's first of all we need to recognize imagination is important it's something mm -hmm that is 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 like soul food you know it's something that that, that that we really need and it's a muscle that we have to get a lot better at exercising because that's how we figure out where mm -hmm. we go from here it's like anything it's like a meditation practice a yoga practice it needs to become a regular practice like people who people who do yoga every day 45 minutes every morning they get up and they mm -hmm. and, and they do their yoga and that's their practice or running or swimming or whatever it is we need to do the same for imagination we need to give ourselves an hour a week two hours a week half of sunday two evenings a week whatever it is we need to give ourselves mm -hmm. some time and some space to dedicate to our imagination whether that's novels or, or improv classes or whatever it is and also i think the other part of it is that it's so easy to set up our social media feeds that we just get this relentless kind of doom scrolling tsunami of misery that comes in over our over our twitter or whatever it is every day relentlessly there are people yeah. on those platforms who are sharing positive stories of change happening find a balance make sure you have a balance i remember when i stopped following Donald Trump on Twitter when he was Twitter or when he was president my mental health improved massively overnight just because I just to take that sort of torrent of nonsense out of my life you know there are people like uh, we are possible transition uh, network there are loads of projects that are putting really positive stories out into the world and I think we owe it to our imaginations to find those and follow that stuff kind of in balance with the with the less positive stuff that's happening around us I think sometimes it's just good to be still <laughs> and yeah. try and relax the busy mind. Yeah, and I and I, I would also add that uh, there's a brilliant book by uh, 
Bessel van der Kolk called uh, The Body Keeps the Score all about trauma mm. and managing trauma. Mm -hmm. And and the link between trauma and anxiety and the, the, the shrinking of the part of our brain where the hippocampus, where the imagination fires from. Mm. And he, he's very explicit in there about meditation, yoga, dancing, kind of coming into our body more than and, out, and not so much in our head are all really, really important yeah. parts of that too. And being outside, being in nature, going for walks, spending time in the forest, gardening. You know, one of the things that our imagination really thrives upon as well is there's research about something called the default mode network, which is when our brain switches into yeah. this really imaginative state, which is where you're, you're, you're doing something but something that only demands a relatively small percentage of your imagination. So like mm. if you are on your smartphone, for example, it takes all of your attention. Mm -hmm. If you are weeding yeah. or podding peas or knitting, it allows yeah. Yeah. your brain to still keep, uh, to be more imaginative than it otherwise would be. Well, Albert Einstein always said he got his best ideas when he rode his bicycle in the forest. And I think that's because he was tapping into that network. Thank you for listening to the first in the series of the Absolute Purpose Project. Please feel free to follow our work at Absolute PR Marketing, our handle across all channels. And please don't forget to rate, subscribe and share our podcast with all your friends.